This past week, I was reading about some missionaries that serve in Southeast Asia. And if you don't know, in that part of the world, there is a lot of religion that involves the worship of many gods. By many gods, I don't mean like five or six. I mean like hundreds, if not thousands. In Hinduism specifically, there are uh, just all manner of gods. And the reality is when those missionaries seek to share Christ with someone and they embrace Christ as Savior and Lord, they have to be careful how they are presenting Christ. Because very often what winds up happening, if at the very least with those from the outside looking in, is that he just becomes one God among many. He says, oh, we, we, we worshiped Shiva and all these other things, and now we just add Christ along with the rest of the pantheon. And what the missionaries have to work very hard at doing is, is showing people that, that there, there are no other gods. That it's not adding Christ to the other gods. It's holding up Christ and worshiping Him in place of all of the other false gods. And so very often what winds up happening is someone becomes a Christian. They tell their friends, I have become a Christian. They say, yeah, yeah, that's nice. No big deal. In Hinduism, sure, be, be a Christian because it's, it's all these other gods. But it's when suddenly they become baptized. And it's very much as we will do today, outdoors in the midst of uh, a, a watching world, that suddenly things become different. Now it's not okay that they've become a Christian. Now their family and friends shun them and don't want to have anything to do with them. Sometimes they become violent against them and argumentative and society as a whole, that the community becomes violent towards them. But, well, what's all the fuss? Why is it that they can say, I'm a Christian, yet when they're baptized, suddenly now, now there is difficulty and struggle and confusion and violence against that decision? What is so special about baptism? What causes it to make all the difference in the world? This afternoon, we will celebrate the Christian ordinance of baptism. And even now, some of you may be thinking, what's all the fuss about? What, what's the big deal? But why are, why are we doing this? Why are we sitting aside our afternoon and, and not having community groups tonight in order to focus on this thing called baptism? Why do Christians even get baptized? You know, sometimes today, Christians don't get baptized. It's not a requirement for church membership, and no one really says anything about it. So they, they make a profession of faith, and they go on for months or years never, never being baptized. Christians... Much more often, though, disagree about how baptism should be done and about what it means and whether or not to do it. This morning, what I want to do is look to the Scriptures and better understand what the Bible teaches about Christian baptism. And I want us to come away never again misunderstanding why it is such a big deal. Not just in Southeast Asia, but here in the United States and here in our lives as individuals as well. In order to do this, we want to take a slightly different approach than normal. Typically, you know, as I've told you to turn to Colossians chapter 2, you would think that we would be in Colossians 2. And I may make reference to some other verses but uh, because that's what I usually do. But we're not doing that today. We're going to take a little bit different approach. Typically, uh, that's called uh, expository or explicatory, if you're from Australia, preaching. It simply means I'm, I'm looking at one portion and I'm explaining what it says and how we should live in light of it. But today I want to do something different that is sometimes called a topical message. And we have our topic, baptism. And what I want to do is bring together key verses across the New Testament that would help us understand what baptism is. And, uh, you, you know, you should know that 
Uh, a fellow by the name of Walt Kaiser, who was a seminary uh, president, has written several books on theology and on preaching. One of his students asked him, is it, is it okay, Professor Kaiser, to preach topical sermons? And he said, sure, you can do it about once a year and then repent afterwards. So this is my once a year, and I'll repent later this afternoon. No, not, not really. But uh, the reason why it's, a, it's an issue is because, you know, it's, it's easier if you just cherry-pick in Scripture to make it mean whatever you want. And so uh, hopefully I've not done that this morning. I think you'll find that the case is, is so. But if you have a question, that's what we have all afternoon to talk about. But this morning, what I want us to do is to better understand Christian baptism by answering five questions about baptism. And rather than expect you to be flipping all over the place uh, in the Bible, what you have found is that this morning in the sermon notes... I I've included uh, verbatim every passage of scripture that I'm going to read today. So if you don't want to uh, get the Bible drill workout this morning, then simply pull out your sermon note sheet and you can follow along as I read. Okay? Are we good? I hope so. This morning, five questions about baptism. First, why should we be baptized? Why should we be baptized? Well, simply put, let me say this. All who profess faith in Christ as Savior and Lord, should be baptized as a visible sign of their salvation. But why? Why is baptism something that we should do? Some people who profess faith can't understand why they need to get wet, particularly on a day like this. Well, the Bible provides four reasons for us to be baptized. First, there is the example of Jesus. There is the example of Jesus. Among other things, Jesus came to set an example for us. Now, some will want to confuse the ministry of Christ. Some will want to detract from the message of the cross, and they will hold Christ up as only the example for us to follow. And I want to say that is wrong. And in fact, we will see why it's wrong in just a few minutes. But at the same time, I want to say it doesn't make Christ less of an example both in his life and even in the atonement, that rather there is a multifacetedness, that is, there are multiple themes, multiple things happening through the cross of Christ, and we need to, to see all of those things. And one of the things that we see from Jesus' life from the cross is his example of, uh, well, of, of how to live a life in obedience to God. And from the outset of his ministry, Jesus himself is baptized. Now, we don't have time to look at the, the whole thing, but the passage in Matthew 3, and the context is John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer, uh, no relation, thank you, uh, but, uh, but he, he is there setting the way for Christ. He has come prophesied, we will see in several weeks, from the book of Malachi, that John the Baptist and the spirit and power of Elijah the prophet, he is coming to make way for the Messiah. And so he comes and he sells all of Israel. He says, prepare yourselves for the coming Messiah by being baptized as a sign of your repentance before God for your sins. And so what his baptism represented was, was, a, was not only a looking back to my life and saying, I, I repent of my sinfulness, but but a, a going down into the water and a coming back up in the water, a baptism that represented now their preparation for the coming Messiah. Uh, they were getting their mind and their heart and their life ready to receive him, to worship him, and to follow him with their lives. And suddenly John gets a surprise because John knows Jesus is coming. In fact, I even think he knows who Jesus is. I don't think, I think that certainly God has revealed to him that, but I think he can also see it because he is so full of God's Spirit. And so the day Jesus, he's preaching about Jesus and he says, I, I'm baptizing you with water, but there, there, one day there is one coming who is so much greater than I that I'm not even fit to untie his sandal. That's how greater he is. And as he's preaching, he sees Jesus coming down and he says, this is the guy I've been preaching about. 
There He is. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the Messiah. But then John gets a surprise in verse 13 of Matthew chapter 3. You can follow along. Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by Him. John would have prevented Him saying, I need to be baptized by you. Why do you come to me? John says, you're the Messiah. Why, why, Why do you want me to baptize you? But Jesus answered, let it be so now, for it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and they saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Now, you understand, Jesus was not baptized because he needed to repent from sins. Jesus was baptized because we need to repent from our sins. You say, what does that mean? Well, it means this. When Christ was baptized, it was part of his larger mission to identify with the people that he came to save. The whole reason Jesus came is to bring glory to God by providing a sacrifice in himself for the salvation of sinners. That's us. That's us, we're sinners. I know some of us think that we're, we're pretty decent guys and gals and we're doing all right, but the Bible says that at our core we are sinners. We stand apart, separated from God because of the evil that exists in our hearts. Maybe sometimes even small evil to us, like white lies or taking a cookie from the cookie jar or something else. But nevertheless, uh, we are created by God for God and whenever we rebel against Him and not live as He wants, that is called sin and the result is judgment. And Jesus came to take that judgment upon himself. We talked about this just in the previous hour in Sunday school. And so what Jesus says, remember what he said, I have come to fulfill all righteousness. Remember, part of Jesus' mission is not just bearing God's wrath, but it's, as it were, banking up a righteousness to be imputed towards us. And so what he is saying is simply this, my people have sin. The people that I have come to save have sin. They are sinners. They need to repent before God. They, if standing here, if I was standing in front of John the Baptist 2,000 years ago, I should have been in the water being baptized. And therefore, in order to secure the righteousness we need, in order to identify himself with those that need not only baptism but salvation, who stand under God's wrath, Jesus goes in our place and is baptized in order to identify with us. But In doing so, he also sets the example. John's baptism is not the same as Christian baptism. Nevertheless, Jesus sets the example that he is willing to go and to be baptized, to be set apart for the purposes of God, and therefore, we are to do that as well. And Jesus makes clear in his example later by very specifically commanding All those who put their faith in Christ must be baptized. And so here we see not just the example of Jesus, but secondly, the command of Jesus. This is a passage that we've become very familiar with the last couple of weeks. Matthew 28. Jesus has died. He's come back to life. He's about to ascend to the Father, and he commands his disciples on what they are now to do. Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Going, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Why should you be baptized? Because Jesus says all who trust in him, all who would claim to be his disciples, should be baptized. And of course we know, again, just by by what we see, that this is exactly what Jesus wanted, because this is what his disciples do after him. So third, we see the command of the apostles. 
Whenever the apostles encounter people who hear the gospel and believe, they themselves command them to be baptized. In Acts chapter 2, Peter has just been preaching, excuse me, preaching Christ. And in verse 37, we read, Now when they heard this, that is, all those Jewish people, and people not just Jews, but most of them were, hearing this message of Christ, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter very specifically says, Repent, that is, return from your sins towards the living God in faith, towards one who has revealed God in his person and his sacrifice, Jesus Christ. And as a sign of that, you are to be then baptized. And then beyond just the command of the apostles, we see the general example of the early church. The entirety of the church sets an example for us as we see and that all new Christians were baptized. So in Acts chapter 2, later on in verse 41, we read, those who received Peter's word that uh, were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. So Peter preaches Christ. They say they become convicted. So what shall we do? Peter says, repent in faith and be baptized. And then we're told that's exactly what they do. 3,000 people. That would be a service I would like to preach at. I would like to be able to see something like that. Then in chapter 9, when Saul, who will later become Paul, the Apostle Paul, who wrote the letters to the Colossians, we'll look at in a minute, when he was saved, uh, God specifically blinded him as part of a, a means of getting his attention and focusing him on the fact of who he was. And then when he is healed from his blindness, we read immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. On the Damascus Road, Paul was literally knocked down off his horse by the glory of Christ. And there he knew and he believed that it was Christ calling him out of persecuting the church to serving the church. And later when the healing came uh, through the hands of the disciples, then Paul went in obedience and was baptized as well. When the Holy Spirit fell on the Gentiles, Peter asked, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? At this point, maybe one or two Gentiles have believed and now suddenly the Holy Spirit comes down uh, through the proclamation of the gospel indicating they have trusted in Jesus. And Peter says, well, they've clearly trusted in Jesus because they have the Spirit. So if they have the Spirit, they've trusted in Jesus. What's stopping them from being baptized? This is what Christians do. They believe the gospel and then they are baptized. So why should someone who professes Christ be baptized? Simply this, because Christ himself has set the example and was baptized. Christ commanded that his disciples after him be baptized. The apostles continued that and commanded that all Christians be baptized. And then the example that is set before us in the early church is every believer being baptized. Those are the reasons the New Testament gives for being baptized. But what does baptism actually mean? What does it signify? What does it mean to be baptized? And so this is the second question that we want to answer. What does baptism mean? What does baptism mean? Well, first of all, you need to understand that, you know, the translators kind of took a pass here, okay? And this, frankly, goes back to a very long, complicated issue in church history. But you need to understand that baptize is not an English word, okay? We use it in English all the time, but we use a lot of other foreign words too, don't we, that we bring into, uh, into common parlance, uh, common way that we talk in English. So sometimes I will tell the kids, it's time to lay down and take a siesta. Now, siesta is not an English word, but they understand nap. It's there. It's rest time. 
Okay? We all get that. It's just we use that word freely. Even though it's a Spanish word, we're not translating it. We're just saying the same word. If we say, I've got, I've got a rendezvous with my wife for a date, what does that mean? It means we're going to get together, we're going to meet, right? At a restaurant or a movie theater or something. That's a French word. But we use it just like an English word. Likewise, we say, we're going to get baptized, but that's a Greek word. That's the language that the New Testament was originally written in, that Paul would have spoken, so many other things. And so the translators kind of, uh, again, for a lot of complicated reasons, instead of translating that word, they just transliterated it. It's baptizo in Greek, and they said, okay, baptize, and we'll just leave it at that. So, but what does baptize mean? That's the question. What does it mean? Well, simply this, it means to immerse, to dip, or to plunge something into water. And so we have, apart from the New Testament, other writings at this time. And guess what it talks about, ladies? Housewives baptizing their dishes. How would, how would that be? I got, I got to finish the cup in the name of the Father and the Son. No, 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 no. It's not like that. They're just washing it. It's all it means. They're putting it down into the water. Uh, probably not a whole lot of soap. Just kind of rinsing it out, pulling it out, wiping it, drying it. Done. You've baptized the cup. You've plunged it. You've submerged it into water. However, when we get to the New Testament, this idea of baptism takes on greater significance. Because what the New Testament ultimately shows is that baptism points to the work God has done in saving us. Baptism symbolizes our spiritual union with Christ. So in Colossians 2, Paul tells the Christians at the city of Colossae, in Christ also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. The great evangelist George Whitfield once said that our life apart from Christ is like the dead body of Lazarus. Do you remember Lazarus from John chapter 11? This is one of Jesus' friends. And he gets sick and he dies. And Jesus takes four days getting to the grave. And there's a reason for that. It's because he wants to display his glory and help show faith in him and his disciples there. But he gets there and Lazarus has been dead for four days. And so the first thing he does, he sees Mary and Martha, Lazarus' sisters, and he weeps with them. Lazarus is their friend. He sees the grief there. And, um, and, and so uh, he experiences that grief as well. But then... He knows he's going to heal him. And so, he's, so he says, take the stone away. And I love the old King James here because, you know, Martha says, but Lord, he stinketh. Right? That's a great word, isn't it? You know, uh, it's, he's, he's stinketh. What is she saying? Hey, you, know, this is, you know, this is not some cold vault in a basement somewhere. This is, you know, this is the Middle East. This is Palestine. It's hot. And things decay, including people. You know, they spiced him up. She says, man, you open that door, you are not going to like what you're smelling, Jesus. He is, he is decrepit and he is, body is breaking down and gases are emanating and it is going to reek when you open that door. Don't, don't do it. And George Whitfield says, that's us in our sins apart from Christ. We are like a rotting corpse. We are bound just as Lazarus would have been like a moment. We are bound in our sins. The, the effects of our life, the fruit that we are producing is not in any way a pleasing aroma to God. It stinks because it's the putrid sinfulness of our hearts that's producing sin and thought and word and deed. And in fact, there is this great barrier of spiritual blindness that serves to block us from hearing the gospel or responding to the gospel, just like there was the great rock before, 
before Lazarus in the tomb. But the beauty is when God allows us to hear the gospel proclaimed, when he allows us to hear how he died for sinners on the cross, how on the cross he hung on under the wrath of God, taking the punishment we deserve for sinners, God begins to do a work in our hearts. This is the great power of the gospel. If we follow along and read more into Colossians chapter 2, beginning at verse 13 after what we just read, Paul says, You were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Yet God made alive, or you who were dead, God made alive together with Christ, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. As sinners, we accumulate a debt of sin that we cannot pay a debt against God. And yet Paul says, though we are dead in our sins, God in his great love, he nails that to the cross. That is to say, debt is considered paid by Christ and therefore canceled out of our accounts. But more than that, Christ also, he says, defeated our spiritual enemies. For while we are still in our sin and we are dead, Paul says in Ephesians 2 that we are blind and we simply follow along in the sinfulness of our hearts the direction that Satan would lead us or any benevolent spiritual force. We just go along with sin. And yet just as God promised Eve in the garden, Paul says here in Colossians 2 that when Christ died on the cross, he crushed the head of the serpent. That though he appeared defeated, it was in fact defeat for the spiritual forces that would wage war against us. So that now we are both freed from the penalty of sin, death, but we also are freed from the power of sin. The chains have been broken. This is not what we just sung when we started off. The, our, our chains were broken. We came out of the dungeon of sin. We were free as light of the gospel filled our hearts. This is what God has done for us in Christ. And as the gospel, that message is proclaimed, God sends His Spirit to open our hearts, to bring spiritual life, that we may see that and we may believe and not just objectively know the cross of Christ and what happened there, but subjectively experience pardon from sin and freedom, victory over sin in our life. That means our sinfulness will not be held count, counted against us. And we are also now free to say no to sin and to pursue righteousness. Paul says baptism is a symbol of all that happening. Baptism is a symbol of our being united into Christ. That is to say, his death becomes our death. His burial becomes our burial. His resurrection becomes our resurrection when we trust in Him, when we place our faith in Christ. And so Paul says, you have not received the circumcision by hands, but the circumcision of Christ. You say, well, what does circumcision have to do with all of this? Well, long story made short, in the Old Covenant, circumcision, the, the small cutting of the foreskin, was a sign that you were part of the covenant people of God. And now Paul says, no, no, it's not any, it's not any cutting that's done with human hands. It's not any physical circumcision. Rather, it is the circumcision of Christ. It is his death, him being completely cut off in the flesh in death. That now becomes your union to God. That becomes your entrance into the covenant community. 
city. But more than that, when Jesus was crucified, he was buried into the ground. It was clear, like Lazarus before him, he had died. And Paul also says that now we experience that same burial with him. And yet just as Christ was raised from the dead, so now we also are raised to newness of life. Though we were spiritually dead, now through faith in Christ, God gives us spiritual life that begins now and also points forward to our future day of physical resurrection as well. This is what baptism is all about. So as you go under the water, it is a picture of your death and burial along with Christ. And just so you know, we don't leave you under the water, okay? You go down and then we bring you back up because it's a symbol of you coming back to life spiritually, not just as Christ did in anticipation of our resurrection with Him. That's what being a Christian is all about. Trusting in Christ as your Savior and having God spiritually unite your life to Christ's. And that is exactly what baptism is meant to to display it is a picture of our spiritual union with christ now his death burial and resurrection become our death burial and resurrection we're no longer dead in our sins though we are alive just like christ is alive to god that's what baptism means but what does baptism do what is actually taking place when you go down into the water it's important to realize here there is nothing magical or mystical about baptism that's why we're able to go and do it in a pool somewhere and we don't have to do it in some in some special place though it is a rich symbol it's not powerful in and of itself there's nothing specifically effective about the water it does not bring about any specific spiritual effect all the same though we must not forget that it is a rich and moving symbol because it symbol what it symbolizes is so personal and moving. So think about it like this for a second. Think about a wedding ring. Think about a wedding ring. Do I when I wear this ring? Do I wear this ring because it causes me to be married to Melinda? No, because I can tell you if I take this thing off and. My, my knuckles are swollen now because I get so heated up up here. It's not going to happen. Sorry. Uh, but uh, if I took that off, does that mean that suddenly I would stop being married to Melinda? No. You say, well, you just took it off for a second. Okay, what if I took it off to clean it? And butterfingers that I am, uh, it flung and went down into a drain somewhere and I lost it forever. Would that mean that suddenly I'm not married to Melinda anymore? No, it, it wouldn't mean that at all. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> no. The ring doesn't cause me to be married, Okay. Um, uh, Melinda could have just given me the ring and said, here you go. And that wouldn't make us married either, right? In fact, a couple of months before we got married, we, we went out and we picked the rings and we, we bought them and um, stoked about getting married in a couple of months. And so when I went back to college for the weekend, I took my wedding ring with me to show off to the guys. Hey, look, I got it. I got the wedding ring. But I also tried it on. I'd say, yeah, it looks pretty good. See, yeah, that's going to look. It's how it's going to feel and think about getting married. And then Melinda was like, don't wear your ring before you get married. Don't do that. Take it off. So I stopped doing it, right? And the point was, hey, you're not married yet. Take it off. But then once I got married, suddenly the ring took on more significance, didn't it? Now suddenly when I'm, when I'm married, when the wedding day came, I said the appropriate vows. Melinda herself put the ring on my finger. The minister declared, you are married, husband and wife. Suddenly the ring means something more than it did before I got married. Now it's a sign of my life in commitment to Melinda in marriage. 
Before it was just a ring. Now it's something more. When I look at the ring on my finger, I am reminded of my vows to her and the mutual love that we have for one another. I am also, by wearing this ring, declaring to the world, I'm taken. I'm not my own man anymore. I belong to my wife, Melinda, just as she belongs to me. We have an exclusive love for one another and not for anybody else. And so if for some, you know, uh, you know, deranged woman would somehow find me attractive, I would say, look, I'm taken. I'm taken. Sorry. Sorry about your luck. Somebody else has got me. That There is a fidelity and an exclusiveness to those vows. And when we think about that, now suddenly we're getting at what baptism is all about. Again, when we're baptized, it doesn't save us. It doesn't. Nevertheless, when we're baptized, we're declaring to God, to the church, to our family and friends, to the world, to the devil, and all that is around us, we belong to Jesus. We belong to Jesus. We are declaring that we have decided to follow him, that we have died to our old way of life, and now we have started a new life in which we live with him and in his power. It is also to point to our life ourselves as we think about our baptism it is something that we are to look back to and be encouraged to press on in faithfulness to christ in the new testament in fact they will say remember your baptism in this way in romans 6 paul says are we to continue in sin that grace may abound by no means how can we who die to sin still live in it Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized, there it is, into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You see, there is always the temptation to make a profession of faith in Christ, but then not to live any differently. When we do that, we profess faith but keep on sinning, Christ becomes something less than what he says he is, And what he needs to be if we place our faith in him. Christ becomes like fire insurance. Why do you buy fire insurance? Because you might have a fire, right? You're not looking for the fire. You don't want the fire to happen, but you get the insurance just in case. That's what Christ becomes like if there's no change in our life. He's just fire insurance. Yeah, there might be a holy God. There might be a hell. And I don't want to go there. I want to be accepted by a holy God, so I'll just get Christ as the fire insurance. And Jesus says, no, it doesn't work that way. The apostles say, no. It doesn't work that way. If you have actually believed Jesus to be your Savior, you've also declared Him to be your King. You have been baptized. You have publicly said to everyone, My old life is over. I may have the same body. I may have the same haircut. I may have the same clothes. But I'm not the same man that I once was. Because this baptism says, I have placed my faith in Christ and in Him alone. And now I follow Him and Him alone. I don't give my love to any other Savior. I don't give my love to any other false God. I give my love to Christ alone and serve Him alone. And Paul is saying that exact same thing. He's telling these Romans, look, don't just think now that you're saved by grace. You can go on and sin and live however you want. He says, no, remember your baptism. Remember what you said happened. Remember that you declared you have new life in Christ. Therefore, don't continue to live like you used to. Live as if your life really is in Christ. Thus, baptism becomes for the Christian an exciting and important, a meaningful declaration of who we are in Christ. And it's one that also helps spur us on to continue living faithfully in Him.
Well, question number four. If that's, if that's why we should be baptized, if that's what baptism means and what baptism does, then who should be baptized? Who should be baptized? As I was preparing this week, I was reading about one Baptist church in the Midwest. And while this church was in between pastors, an associate pastor began a tradition or, or a policy, I guess, uh, similar to what we have, where a, a person's testimony is read before they are baptized. And so as they had baptisms, that, that's what would happen. Well, they got their senior pastor, and this senior pastor had it in his mind that he was going to lead this church into being uh, one of the, uh, the highest, uh, the, the church that had one of the highest numbers of baptisms in the entire denomination, okay? Now, right there, that's, that's kind of, you're thinking, okay, so what's, what's the motivation for that? But he gets into the baptistry for the first time one Sunday. It may not have been the first time, but one Sunday he gets into the baptistry and there's a five-year-old boy that, that's coming for baptism. And the pastor says, uh, so, so do you know why, he says, why are you coming to be baptized today? And the five-year-old says, I don't know. And, and you know, people kind of nervously laugh in the congregation. The pastor kind of chuckles. And he says, well, well, have you trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? And the kid says, I don't know. And the, and the pastor kind of chuckles it off again and begins asking some, some more questions about spiritual things. And each time, the kid is clearly has no concept of what's going on. And each time, honestly and truthfully, he says, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. And if I was a kid, I'd say, why keep asking me these questions? I don't know any of the answers to them. But the pastor keeps in eventually... He just laughs all off and still baptizes the kid and sends them out. Now, do you understand that's, that's not what we do here? That, that, that's not what we do. Even after this kid had admitted he had no knowledge of the gospel, no personal knowledge of Jesus Christ, he's still baptized. That's not what we do. Why? Because it's not what the New Testament teaches. It should be clear by now that over and over and over again in the New Testament, the pattern is belief in Christ followed by baptism. Belief in Christ followed by baptism. In other words, the gospel is presented, the individual believes by the grace of God, then he is baptized as a public witness to that belief. You say, do we see that in the Bible? Absolutely. Acts chapter 2, after Peter preaches. Those who received the word, that is, those who believed, they were baptized. Acts chapter 8, the people... Um, uh, believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. They were baptized. Belief, baptism. Acts chapter 18, many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. Even in Jesus' own command, the Great Commission, he first says, make disciples, that is, lead them to belief in me, and then baptize them, Matthew 28. This is why we do not think the Bible says anything about baptizing infants or even young children. Faith is the means by which we acquire the salvation we have in Christ. It does not come automatically to us as, uh, as a family inheritance or because someone else has prayed for us. And that's why you will look in vain to find any example in the Bible of infants being baptized. Why? Because it, it flies in the face of the entire thing that we've just been seeing. Baptism looks back to a change that has occurred in your life. If, if someone is not old enough or mentally capable enough of making that profession of faith, then there's no need to be baptized. It's meaningless then. Therefore, we baptize and we believe all true baptism occurs after a person places their faith in Christ, not before. And so other people, they call what they do baptism, but we would say, that's not baptism. That's just getting wet. That's going through a ceremony. True baptism only occurs after you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ. And so for that reason, we conclude from the Bible that only those 
who verbally profess faith in Christ should be baptized. This is called believer's baptism or the baptism of disciples alone. And then finally, we ask ourselves, how should we be baptized? Again, Christian churches disagree about this. Some say merely pouring water or touching the forehead with water or a small drop is sufficient. But there are several reasons for insisting that under normal circumstances, baptism should be by full immersion in water. In other words, just as the, the washerwoman would have, would have dunked her cup all the way in the water and brought it back out, likewise, that's what we do. We fully immerse the person in water. Now, let me just say this too, though. Um, Notice I said under normal circumstances, okay? There are people because of physical difficulties or illness, they can't, they can't go under the water. And in which case we would, following the practices of the very early church and things like the Didache, we would allow for something like pouring, knowing that's the exception, not the rule. So you say, well, why do you believe immersion is important? Well, the simple answer is this. That's what they did in the New Testament. They immersed. When John the Baptist was baptizing people, the Gospel of John makes the point of saying, when John the Baptist was baptizing at, uh, he was baptizing at Anon near Salim because the water was plentiful there and the people were coming and being baptized. John could have just sat there with a water pot, couldn't he? Gone from house to house, town to town. Hey, you want to be baptized for repentance? Good. Boom, sprinkled, let's move on. No, no, he's in the middle of a river and people are coming to him because there's sufficient water for them to go down and to come back up. Likewise, in Acts 8, Philip is witnessing to a eunuch from Ethiopia and we read, as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized them. And then they came up out of the water. When they did, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. The New Testament example over and over and over again is clearly one of complete immersion. In fact, shocker, maybe, maybe not, even people who do not practice immersion admit this was the New Testament practice. They just say, we don't, we're not bound by that. By which we would say, if it's good enough for the apostles, why are we going to change it? Right? If it's good enough for the early Christians, that's how Jesus did it. Uh, why would we go about changing it? More than that, though, just the practice, uh, it's also the best picture of salvation. Being plunged down into the water and coming back up, we have a picture of our being plunged into Christ, of being completely covered and surrounded by Him and by His righteousness, of being immersed into His death and His burial. And then in rising up out of the water, we have this picture of the resurrection of Christ and our having life in Him. Remember, that's what's being pictured in baptism, our union in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. So when we think again about those Christians in Southeast Asia, why did everybody get upset when they were baptized? Because they were making a clear statement to everyone. I'm not adding one more God to the many. I'm renouncing my old life and I'm fully committing myself to Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord. That's what baptism is all about. It's about trusting in Christ as your Savior and Lord and then declaring to all those who will see and hear through baptism that this is what you have decided to do with your life. It is a marking off of your old life in sin and now your new life in Christ. So this morning, some of you sit here and you've never trusted in Christ for your Savior. You sit here and you, there's never been a time in your life where you've said, uh, you know, I know that in order to be right with God, the only thing I can do is trust in Jesus, believe that He died for me. So this morning, the call for you would be to trust in Christ, to, to believe and be saved. And there are some of you, though, that have professed faith in Christ at some point and you've never been baptized. The call for you would be in obedience to Christ and to the example and the fulfillment of all that we have just seen to be baptized as a testimony of the work that God has done in your life and in obedience to Christ's command.
But I imagine the greater call for most of us, those that have believed and have been baptized, is the same call that Paul gave to the Romans in, in chapter 6 of his letter, and that is live like it. Live like it. Remember your baptism. Remember what it represented. Remember that there, was a, there, there should have been a clean break. In God's eyes there was. Because once you had no life, once you were spiritually dead, and now you have been given life, God has done this work in you. Remember that event, remember that split that has occurred in Christ and now begin to live like it. Don't think that now that you're saved by grace, you can just sin and do whatever you want. Out of love and obedience to God, pursue Him by faith. Live like the Christian you have proclaimed to be in your baptism. Father, we are thankful for Your Word to us. We're thankful for the clarity of Your Word, for the simplicity of the message of the Gospel and yet also its weightiness. Father, I pray that Your Spirit would have been at work in our midst today and that, God, you would be bringing conviction and encouragement to those that need to hear it. I pray, Father, this afternoon that, God, this will not be looked on as just this thing that needs to be done because these people are joining the church. But, Father, we would truly be able to rejoice and celebrate in the ordinance that you've laid out to us and the powerful image that's there of one being plunged into Christ and having their life united with him. Father, we pray that all these truths be mindful to us as we sing and worship to you, and as we depart from here to gather together again to experience the ordinance of baptism. We ask all this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.